0: Hello, welcome to the New Books Network, New Books and African-American Studies channel. My name is Ari Barbalat, and I'm your host today for a dialogue that I am humbled and blessed to conduct with Emerald Garner, author of the book and memoir, Finding My Voice on Grieving My Father, Eric Garner, and Pushing for Justice, published in Chicago, by Haymarket Books, 2021, Emeralds. Uh, I'm grateful beyond words to be in dialogue with you today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I really um, appreciate having the opportunity to talk about um, this project that is so very near and dear to my heart.
0: Thank you. I could not be more thankful to begin. Uh, please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? Uh, what What formative events in your life stimulated the person you would later become?
1: Um, Well, my name is Emerald. (laughs) I am from Brooklyn, New York. Um, That's where I was born and raised. I was actually born in St. John's, which is now um, named Interfaith Hospital. Um, And I've always been a bookworm. I've always been a reader, a thinker, um, and a talker. (laughs) <laughs> if you let my mom tell it. Yeah. But, um, you know, as I went through my adolescent years and then going into my teenage years, I've always been lucky to find people in my life to help me, to help guide me in the right ways. So mm-hmm. if I would even step foot on the bad road, there was always somebody there to be like, no, no, this is not what, this is not you. This is not what you're going to do, but instead make yourself better and be you know, a productive member of society. So uh, I, I lucked up in having good mentors.
0: Mm. Do you have a favorite book?
1: Um, uh, I don't really have a favorite book. No, I don't have a favorite book. I just, uh, <laughs> I, I just, I like to read.
0: What inspired you to write this book? What do you hope readers will gain from it?
1: Um, I decided to write this book because after my father died, um there was nobody like of course there were victims of police brutality that I could speak to but there was nobody that I I knew of that was on the same type of journey as me so I know that you know when we're grieving we're grieving in this way in such a public way you forget about yourself you lose yourself and prime example is you know my sister or whatever but um when I decided to to just like, you know, I need to tell my side of the story. I need to tell what I'm feeling and how I'm coping with it because I meet a lot of people that are like, you know, how do you get to where you are? How can you smile again? How could you laugh again and all this stuff? And I'm like, you know, like just because I'm smiling doesn't mean I'm not hurting on the inside. Just because I'm laughing doesn't mean that there aren't things going on the inside. So I wrote it as more of a guide to help people and let them know like, it's okay to grieve and it's okay to grieve for a long time. And nobody should judge you for the way that you grieve, whatever that way is.
0: How are are you coping presently with your father's death?
1: For me, it's moving. Um, Doing a lot of advocacy work, work, working with a lot of um, people who have been affected by state violence like me. Um, I recently started a a support group. Um, um, We're calling it the Healing Justice Village because you know, they always said it takes a village to raise a child and, you know, we have to have resources and people should have more than one person that they should look to for advice. So I wanted to create an atmosphere for women um, where we could support each other in non-traditional ways. So like supporting somebody doesn't always mean I need you to help me pay my bills or I need money for this or I need money for that. Help is not always monetary. So sometimes it's a conversation. Sometimes it's knowing that you could call somebody and you're like at the at the tip of the mountain and you're just like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm just about to go over a cliff with emotions and they could definitely relate and understand that, you know, today I'm feeling a little off. Tomorrow I might feel better. I might not feel better, but I have people who are around me that understand what I'm going through.
0: What does your book teach us about listening?
1: Um, for me, being heard is important. Um, I don't feel like I was silenced as a child because, you know, in my house, we were able to express how we felt about things. And if we got mad at something or, you know, I was always able to talk to my parents and tell them, you know, this is what I like. This is what I don't like. This is what I'm feeling. This is why I'm sad. So I think that it's important that people listen. And sometimes people don't flat out say what they need, but they, 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 they say it in other ways. They show it in other ways. So it's just one of those things where it's like, In order for you to know what I need, you have to listen. And in that listening, I need you to hear me. I don't need you to just tell me what I need to hear because I'm having a bad day. No, actually listen to me and help me in the way that I need to be helped.
0: What was your week like prior to the shock of your dad's death?
1: Um, The week prior um, was a normal week. Um, I had just gotten a job at Payless as a store manager. Um, I went from being a supervisor to a store manager. So I was super excited about that and, you know, just managing my own store, becoming into my own self, um, you know, receiving a higher salary. And it was just, I was just so happy. Like, you know, I worked from being a sales representative to a cashier, to a supervisor, to, you know, uh, a shift leader, to all these things. And now I'm finally a store manager. And then I believe it was like three weeks later that my father passed away. Well, that he was killed and then everything just started to spiral. So before that, I was living my best life.
0: What was your last memory of time spent with Eric before he was killed? What did you do together? What did you talk about? What was his mood?
1: Well, the weekend before, um, the weekend before, he was, he had all the, my mom and my dad had all the kids. So all the kids means my daughter and um, Erica's daughter. So because we were the only ones that had kids at the time. And Alyssa, did, um, my sister didn't have my nephew. Um, we went to a barbecue in Coney Island um, with, with you know, my father's side of the family. And, you know, he was working the grill. Um, you know, the kids were running around playing. And the funniest thing I remember is my mom, you know, she has rheumatoid arthritis. So her hands don't work. Like, you know, they don't function how regular hands work. So uh, my daughter was standing next to her and she went to pick up my daughter and my daughter kind of like fell through her hands and and hit the floor. (laughs) So I picked up my daughter and I went to my father. I was like, daddy, Bobby just dropped Kaylee on the floor. He just dropped, she just dropped her on the floor. He was like, what? Where's she at? What happened? So when he went over there, he was like, how are you going to drop the baby on the floor? And she was like, I didn't drop her. She slipped through my hands. So that was that was the, the joke for the rest of the night was my mom dropping my daughter.
0: Can you tell us about Laura Dean King and her relationship with you? What is your relationship like with her? What did you learn from her?
1: Um, I just want to say first that Laura is a rock star. Um, unlike me, she lost her father when she was younger. Um, I mean, she was, unlike me, she lost her father when she was older. But the tragedy happened when she was a little younger. I'm not sure... How old she was when it happened but you know um after his his um unfortunate incident happened um you know he lived and then he started to suffer long-term damages so you know he started to have mental issues because as a result to what happened to him so it was just one of those things where we had like instant connection an instant bond like you know soon as we start talking, it's just like, I feel those things too. And she's like, I feel those things too. And I'm like, you know, you just, sometimes you don't know what to say to somebody when they're grieving, but she just had all the right words to say, because she's been through it like me and she's, she's fighting for it. Like me, she's doing, you know, and I'm doing a lot of things, um, to take care of myself, like her, like she suggested and, you know, just, just having that person that when they say, I'm sorry for your loss, I'm grieving for you. I feel sad for you. I empathize with you. I have compassion for you. And actually believing them.
0: In your perspective, what are the similarities and differences between your loss of Eric and the fate of Rodney King?
1: Um, The only thing I can say is that he lived after Mm. he lived to tell his story.
0: Thank you. What does your book teach us about trauma?
1: Um, I will hope that my message will come across come across clear that it doesn't matter how, let me make make sure I'm wording this right. I want people to understand that it's not what you do is how you do it. And not only that, sometimes people need an extra layer of care and an extra layer of empathy if you really want to get through to them. If there is a situation, there's a, a murder that happens, people need to be handled with care. And they need to be, you know, understood. And they need to be heard because it's not right the way that things happen and how you know cases happen. And this case gets about gets a lot of media attention, but this case doesn't get a lot of media attention. And regardless to whether that case gets media attention or not, that family still needs to help. So whether this this resulted in a big, I'm all over the TV, all over the place like Eric Garner or not, where where it came to. Um, Brandon Rodriguez, who died in Rikers Island a year ago. Excuse me, he's not getting the media attention that my father received, but his family still needs help. And they should mm-hmm. still get the help that they need, even if they don't make the five o'clock news every time that they have a progress or a regress in their in their case.
0: Thank you for sharing. How did you get to know Atan Thomas? How were you introduced to him?
1: Um, this was during All-Star Weekend um he was doing uh an event at the church (laughs) excuse me he was doing an event at the church for all-star weekend and he invited and this was for young young boys in middle school so they reached out to a bunch of middle schools bus the kids to our location to have a panel about all-star weekend police brutality and you know just everything that's going on with the state of the culture and he invited me to come out like you know you don't have to talk You don't have to say nothing, but I want you to witness this powerful event of people that support you that you don't even know that are supporting you. And I showed up to the event. Um, We ended up going through the event. Everybody was talking. We had some really good, good conversations. The panel was amazing. And then at the end, he was like, oh, just come up. You know, you don't have to say nothing. Just stand up and just stand right there, chill, whatever. Um, And then I ended up speaking and I started talking. And then the way that the young people received what I had to say was, it was amazing. And it, and it made me feel like, okay, I have a voice to say things and people will listen. And after, you know, everything was done, the young people that came up to me and spoke to me and told and me about, you know, their lives and stuff. That's what really built our bond. That's what made our bond connect, uh, made our bond stronger because I'm like, I appreciate you giving me the the platform to, to not only express myself, but to also thank the people and it's the young people like that.
0: How has his advocacy how has his advocacy work supported you and assisted you?
1: Um I was able to make a lot of connections with a lot of survivors. Um I'm not calling us victims uh, of police brutality. We're survivors of police brutality. and um, I was able to make some great connections with him. Um, we did a lot of traveling, a lot of resources, a lot of referrals. Um, you know, when I, when I need something or if I need something done or, you know, just something done on a larger scale, um, I could always tap in with him. I could always, um, you know, just, just lean on him for advice. And I, I appreciate that wholeheartedly.
0: To what degree have you suffered from depression okay, in your grieving process since Eric's death? can you comment on this experience?
1: Um, It's been hard. I have my days, my up days, my down days, I have times where I just don't want to go through the day. Um, And I just feel like sometimes it takes, sometimes it takes a lot for me to, um, to get out the bed in the morning, but I start to remember that, you know, at the end of the day, I'm not only doing this for myself. I have I have my child and then two additional children that I need to take care of. And if I don't do it, nobody's going to do it. So that's how, that's how I get myself out of the bed in the morning. That is just like, if it's not me, it's going to be nobody. Because if nobody's with us while I'm here, nobody's going to be with us while I'm gone. So I have to make an extra effort to make sure that I'm here to take care.
0: In your book uh, on page 20, you describe some of your physical symptoms as follows. You write... I was really struggling for a while, and I kept having nightmares, replaying what happened, seeing the cops' faces, standing around watching, the people driving by, nobody helping him. It played in my head over and over again, almost like a movie, because I could see all the characters. I used to wake up completely drenched in a sweat, or wake up crying so hard my chest would be hurting, and I have asthma, so waking up to an asthma attack. Because the anxiety and torment for my dream, or should I say nightmare, was re-traumatizing me while I slept. So when I woke up, I would just be sad the rest of the day. For a while, I was scared to go to sleep. Like the old school Freddy Krueger movies, when they would be doing everything they could to stay awake. Because they didn't want Freddy to get him. That's how I was afraid of going to sleep for a while. Because I didn't want my thoughts and my nightmares to get me. And that's the part that people don't know about. How long did the symptoms that you allude to in that passage continue for? Do they still um, persist?
1: It it still happens. Um, sometimes it it absolutely still happens because you know it doesn't happen as intense. Um, because I'm I'm working on myself. Um, but it it still persists, and I just have to you know re- recenter myself. Um. I recently started to meditate, um, just rebuilding a relationship with God. Trying to figure out like what like what are my beliefs, you know what what do I what do I truly genuinely believe in my heart, not what somebody told me to believe. Um, so I think that having a better understanding of who I am uh, it's kind of making the making it a little bit easier to deal with. Not better, but easier to deal with.
0: Where did you find the strength to make it through those nights?
1: I don't even know. Um, It could be just talking to people, talking to a friend, talking to people who are closer to me that knew the situation. Um, It just—it was just all about trying to figure out what worked for me.
0: Can you tell us about your organization, We Can't Breathe? What does it do? What inspired you to create it? What does it offer? Um, Can you Tell us about it.
1: Um, sure, absolutely. So We Can't Breathe was created, you know, of course, after my father cried 11 times that he couldn't breathe and the police ignored him. Um, then three years later, my sister died. So it was the uh, We Can't Breathe um, that, I, that I developed because my father and my sister. So we focus on um, eliminating all forms of state violence and focusing on mental health. So the mission is to get young people support, um, And just to get people support period so we have three pillars, which is heart for justice job for justice and after five for justice, which are three mental health. Three mental health programs that we have after five for justice is a hotline that people can call if they just want to talk it's actually up and live and if you call it you'll get my phone or somebody else on the team um jobs for justice is a, is a job development program um that we would try to bring into schools um starting at around middle, middle school up until high school and through college um support and um hearts for justice basically focuses on mental health in its entirety. So how do how do we go through everyday life? How do we pay bills? How do we, you know, clean up the house? How do we make sure that we have toiletries? So just all of those things wrapped into one because those things can affect your mental health. Like how your men- the state of your mental health could be so bad that you haven't washed your dishes in 3 months. So you have dishes out the wazoo, but it's not that you don't want to wash the dishes, it's just that your mental health Um, barrier is preventing you from wanting to keep a clean house from wanting to have those things so that's what we want to um instill in our young people and we also have um the healing justice village which meets every night it's open to um all women who have experienced um state violence right now we have about six members and all of them either have a have a child in prison or has lost their child due to the prison system and um we support each other in major ways. Um, and our um, our goal is to have the support and the resources that we need for our women. Um, for example, we need childcare resources. We need mental health resources. We need um, transportation resources. And sometimes they are not available to us. So we try to lean on each other to figure out how we can help each other. And um, we can't breathe is the, 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 the big idea for what I, how I want to push those programs forward.
0: Is the organization's work fulfilling your original hopes?
1: Absolutely. Um, sometimes I feel like I'm not doing enough because I'm, I'm working from home. So I can't be everywhere. I can't go to every protest. I can't go to, to somewhere every time somebody is killed and that family needs resources because I have three kids at home. I don't have no no type of support. I got to pick them up, drop them off at school every day. So I can't travel the world and be there for everybody in the physical. But I can definitely virtually support, you know, all of the families reaching out, making sure that they have the mental health support that they need, figuring out what those mental health um, support systems would be. So it's very fulfilling for me because I wish that I had somebody eight years ago to help guide me through this mental health thing that I'm going through and actually took the time and to be consistent with helping with the things that I need.
0: Thank you for sharing that. What are you working on now as your current project? As a final question, do you mind sharing? What are you working on next as a subsequent endeavor after this book?
1: Well, after this book, I am hoping to build such a strong network of professional mental health specialist and not even just traditional psychologists. So, oh, I'm a counselor. Oh, I'm just a regular therapist. No, I'm, I'm looking at this as a way of, I want, we can breathe in my next project to help women in real ways. I want to really help women in real ways because, you know, you can go to your regular public assistance office and receive food benefits but you can't go to that same office for mental health services and then when you go for mental health services it takes three months to get an appointment so I think that there should be a special network of mental health professionals that are readily available for people who are losing their their family and their loved ones to police brutality and I think that we can't breathe can definitely be the next that can be the next pillar of what we do because it's needed And nobody knows who to call. Everybody calls Rainbow Coalition and National Action Network. And they do great work. They do absolutely wonderful work. But they don't have mental health therapists on staff. They don't have a mental health resource. There's a crisis line. But with that crisis line, it's referred out to someone else. And I would like for that referral to be outsourced to me. So that way, they can come to a place where they know I've been through it. So nothing that I say to them is far-fetched. Nothing that I say to them isn't something that I've already been through. So I want them to feel safe knowing that your mental health is, is safe with me because I understand better than anybody else in the world.
0: Amazing. I'm really lucky to have had this time with you and look forward to your organization, We Can't breathe continued growth and progress in helping others. Thank Thank you for everything you're investing in We Can't Breathe. Thank you for all the silent sacrifice that went into writing this book, Finding My Voice. And thanks for being the extraordinary person you are.
1: Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I really enjoyed our conversation today.
0: My pleasure. As we bring our conversation today to a close, I'm your host on the New Books Network, Ari Barbalat on the New Books in African American Studies channel. I've been blessed to be in dialogue today with Emerald Garner. We have discussed her new book, Finding My Voice on Grieving My Father Eric Garner and Pushing for Justice, published in Chicago by Haymarket Books, 2021. Thank you from the bottom of my heart.
1: Thank you so much.